This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alison Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined by my colleagues Ed Reed and Ryan Duff this week, and it feels that it has been a little while since we've had this lineup, guys. Uh, how are you both doing? I feel like the question should be, how are you doing? I mean, we've been here for the past few weeks. <laughs> I know, it's just a veiled way of me saying I've been off. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've, I'm fine, a little sleep deprived. Um, bit of indulgent personal news my wife and I uh, had our newborn so we've been <laughs> frantically reporting on energy news whilst also changing nappies uh, in the past couple of weeks <laughs> but um you know it's amazing what the body can do when it's when it needs to uh, operate on and, and adapt but uh, but there we are um so where to start this week probably not with the nappies maybe new details of the penguins fpso incident which if you kind of cast your minds back to January, February of this year. This is the big shell vessel coming out of China, heading uh, around the world towards uh, Norway. And it will inevitably, it will eventually become the first new manned vessel for shell in the UK in about 30 years. So January, February time, whilst it was in transit on this kind of voyage, several Greenpeace protesters boarded, uh, boarded its transport vessel um, whilst it was kind of moving from China, it was kind of this all kind of kicked off, kind of around the coast of Morocco, kind of uh, when this sort of kicked off, and obviously we had more protests, um, but eventually it made its way to Hagesund in Norway. Um, but it's emerged this week, Shell is suing Greenpeace over this. Fresh details come to light on the cost there, but also perhaps more importantly, in fact, certainly more importantly, the safety aspect of this. So the headline figure being threatened, if you like, in the correspondence Shell sent to Greenpeace, $8.6 million that they could, could be seeking. Shell's directly seeking $2.1 million. The, remaining, the remainder, they're coming from Shell's contracting parties like Fleur, who are seeking damages. But the document suggests a reduced settlement could have been reached if Greenpeace had agreed to, uh, to never again effectively board, obstruct, damage uh, assets like this in the future, including when the Penguins FPSO eventually leaves Norway, as I say, to go to the UK next year. Greenpeace argues Shell were kind of stifling the rights to protest. Shell have uh, taken some degree of issue with that reading, and they are quick to highlight that they respect the right to protest. This is about preventing dangerous actions offshore. So we've received copies of some of the letters, the, the legal documentation that Shell sent Greenpeace, including you know details showing, uh, or claiming I should say, that a protester fell into the water as they had tried to board this you know seventy two thousand ton vessel whilst it was turning, um, and they fell over and had the ship basically turned the other way, the letter states that this protester would have been dragged underneath the vessel and you know killed if not seriously injured. They weren't hurt in the end, um, but it does demonstrate some of the risk there. Greenpeace, in response to that, saying Shell are deliberately exaggerating the risks here. Uh, they said they were wearing life jackets, which would have kept them buoyant at all times, preventing them from being dragged under. Um, now, I don't know much about buoyancy, and I, I hesitate to be flippant about this, but I'm quite confident a life jacket wouldn't make much of a difference if you were in the path of a you know, a massive ship like that. That's just my reading of that there. Also saying that they had rescue boats in the water, crewed by staff and emergency trained in emergency response and recovery. 
all our activities meticulously planned, very long track record of carrying action at sea safely. So that's what Greenpeace is saying about this. On safety, a few points to probably raise. The judge, when they grant when they granted Shell uh, an injunction against you know ships boarding or coming nearby to the Penguins in February, that judge had agreed that the protesters had put the lives of crew, uh, the lives of the pro- their own their own lives, the protesters' lives at risk, but also indirectly the lives of the crew. Uh, other details coming out from these documentation. Boscalis, um, the owner of the White Marlin, which was transporting the the Penguins FPSO. It hired. It got a secondary support ship to come and help to you know block protesters um, or other ships coming up to join, but also um, to prepare for any kind of rescue efforts if need be. Uh, we find out that Shell had decided to divert the Penguins from its course of the English Channel, which is the more direct route, for fear of more protests. Clearly, the English Channel being a very um, busy shipping lane, among other. Um, points that it had to kind of go around the west coast of Scotland in the end. And then you've got, you know, Abel Hagesund. Um, they've got, you know, costs for security, cameras being set up, etc., etc., at their base in Norway because of, as I say, the, the, the protests. So Greenpeace in this action kind of highlighting the need for climate reparations from Shell. They're talking up that you know, the sum that Shell is seeking, they're wanting donations to help cover their costs. I don't know how much money Greenpeace have, but I, I don't get the sense that they'll struggle to meet this. Interesting thing is, and I think a key test will be, will this stop them from protesting as vessels, kind of, as the vessel leaves uh, Norway next year and goes to the station? The other question I'd put to you guys, you know, you get this narrative here being perpetuated, energy giants stifling protests. Um, but that, you know, at sea danger element, danger, that element of danger is what's key. But I, I think the question I put it, is this damaging in that respect to Shell or indeed the wider energy industry? You know, one more lawsuit against an NGO who are saying you are stifling our right to protest. Um, so, yeah, what do you guys think on those points? I, I think like most things in the uh, the energy debate that we've uh, we've covered oh so often on this podcast is a. Uh, I think no matter if actions taken on either side, it drives it drives the two sides further apart, right? You know, um, people on the sort of pro oil and gas side um, will definitely see it as, from Shell's point of view, of a you know impacting yeah, business operations, but having to divert the course and yada yada. You know, other sort of points you've touched on there, but also yeah, the safety safety element of things. I think it's quite interesting that you touched on. Uh, the, the first sort of proposal of Shell was, you know, like, we can settle if you're not going to do this again. And I feel like that was probably never going to be agreed upon, right? I don't think Greenpeace are ever going to say, okay, yeah, we'll never, we'll never interfere with operations again. That's kind of against their, their whole MO, isn't it? Um, in terms of the safety point, I think that's the, I think that's the interesting point here to me, at least, um, I remember reporting this at the time, and it feels like much, much longer ago than just January, February. Time. It's the end of the year already. What happened to 2023? I mean, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, what happened to the year? I remember preparing for offshore Europe, and now we're here. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, but getting back to the point, you know, I remember we spoke about safety over the news desk and, you know, about what what would happen if something were to go wrong and, you know, routes being diverted to avoid any potential incidents. 
that's I think that's the the crux of this to me, you know, and I feel like that will be the same for many people. Uh, you know how like it, there's a difference between protesting shells offices on Union Street, say, than boarding a moving vessel in international waters, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe just sort of jumping in on that kind of safety question. Obviously, uh, I think in you know, a Greenpeace uh, have every reason to kind of try and diminish the uh, the severity of this incident. And Shell has, has every reason to uh, sort of hype it up. So it's, it's sort of hard to find some sort of uh, objective truther, isn't it? But I think, I, I guess also this kind of always... It, it, it strikes me that, there, that it, you know, sort of, you, we, we talk about it being a sort of a debate, don't we? But I, I kind of feel that really it's, you know, these people are not having a debate, right? Shell is having a kind of a contractual discussion. Shell is saying, look, you know, uh, floor, we need to compensate. We're going to have to try and wrangle how much money this is worth. And, you know, our boss Garlis with the diversion and the extra ship or whatever. And Greenpeace is saying, look, this is an existential threat. We need to do this to to you know kind of try and you know tackle the, uh, the the crisis that the world is heading to. These people are not talking really to each other. No, uh, 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 right? They, they they are they are kind of coming out with these kind of competing statements. I mean, obviously, in a sense, they are talk, they they are they are kind of having to kind of talk in court and try and sort of reach some sort of an agreement or some sort of way forwards about you know damages or compensation or whatever. But essentially, they are not having the same conversation. I think that's right, Ed. I mean, the the, the other kind of thing that kind of comes to mind a little bit about this. I mean, Shell, when they come with the Penguins, FPSO and that, they, they are talking about, you know, the, the arguments we've heard before about UK energy security. And, and I suppose we could relitigate that here. Um, in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's a, it's a relatively small project. And, you know, it does occur to me that anywhere else in the world, or not anywhere else in the world, but let's let's say, you know, certainly parts of your patch and, you know, places in Africa, um, it's not inconceivable that if people had tried to board a vessel like this, um, they'd have been treated very, very differently. Um, perhaps the way that they would treat, you know, pirates trying to board a vessel like this, um, you know, and then you know the safety risk could be that much heightened. Um, I think we do need to give Shell a bit of credit for how they have handled this in that regard. At least there were precautions in place for people. You know, they they clearly had expected some protesters to come on board. Um, I think that's fair to say. And they hadn't, you know, hosed them off, um, to put it to put it bluntly. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right that, that there's two two sides kind of shouting at each other, but no one's really listening. I think that's probably a fair way of fair way of putting it. Sorry, Ryan, what were you going to say? I think it's quite interesting the point you made about how if this happened in a different part of the world, maybe with a different company, the results might be very different. Um, you know, obviously the protesters did stay on the vessel for. An extended period of time. I believe at the time Greenpeace said it was the longest sort of commandeering uh, or sort of occupation of a of a vessel like this in its history. So, um, you know, I, I remember speaking to to the firms involved, Shell and Pascalis at the time, and you know they were saying we're making every effort to make sure that the protesters are safe. So, safety was definitely a uh, high up on the agenda throughout the the incident, and I think. Now it's sort of coming to light how how dangerous some of this could have been. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't. I guess it won't be the last protest uh, that we see regarding the UK in the coming kind of period. Uh, and speaking of which, we're going to move over uh, to another kind of protest hit oil field after this. ESG Legalities is a special one-off podcast episode brought to you by Sustainable Growth Voice in paid partnership with Burness Paul. 
Join me, Heather DeMoody, in conversation with Stephen Stewart, Head of ESG at Burness Paul, and Lynn Gray, Head of Health, Safety and Corporate Crime. We'll be shedding light on the legal perspective of ESG, exploring the opportunities it holds and explaining what success truly looks like in practice. This special episode is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Ryan, so talking of protest hit projects, Equinor's Rosebank, what's the latest with that? Protest? I, I can't remember anything. <laughs> Any opposition to Rosebank, what you're on about, Alison. <laughs> um, yes, but all, all joking aside, yeah, Equinor has been making headlines this week, or maybe not intentionally, it is a bit of market speculation here, but it's being reported that the Norwegian firm is looking to sell a 20% stake in Rosebank which was just approved a couple of months ago. It's the the UK's largest untapped oil field just off the west of Shetland. This uh, this 20% stake uh, makes about a quarter of its ownership. It currently owns 80% of the uh, of the share in the in the field. Uh, the firm only acquired an extra 40% ownership that hadn't existed in 40% before this. Um, in March, when it uh, signed an $850 million deal with Suckner. So earlier in the year, it sort of made a bigger commitment to the field, and now it's looking to maybe scale back a little bit. It's been reported uh, by Reuters that this this share that it's uh, that Equinor is looking to offload uh, could fetch uh, a tidy sum of $1.5 billion, so uh, quite a sizable chunk. Uh, we spoke to a few analysts on this, and uh, David Mosley, uh, Vice President of Operations for Europe at Welligence Energy Analytics, said that this this price tag uh, for just 20% uh, would represent about a 12 times uplift compared to the Suckner deal. So, you know, serious sort of increase in, uh, increase in value potentially after the, uh, the approval by the North Sea Transition Authority earlier in the year. Dave also mentioned, though, that assuming a 20% stake um, in, in doing that and a potential buyer would have total outlays of around $2 billion uh, before first oil. So, you know, still still quite a bit to do to get that across the line, but I think that's a, that's a given. You know, it's, it's just been given its approval, so there's still quite a lot of work to be done. Hmm. Uh, you know, it... Like I say, the the development only just got approval a couple of months ago. It was much anticipated. And like you said uh, at the top of this this segment, Alistair, you know, there was a lot of protest around the West of Shetland development, much like uh, a neighboring project. Uh, We spoke about Shell earlier. Shell had a a stake in Cambo, which is just nearby. um, And it was looking to get rid of a 30% stake up until earlier this year. It Obviously, uh, failed to find a buyer and ended up giving uh, its thirty thirty percent stake to Ithaca as part of a fallback clause. So you know, we I guess there's something that can be drawn from that. And if Shell struggled to sell a stake in a in a field not too far away in a sort of similar situation with uh, lots of contention around it, is is this going to be? Um, a similar situation for Equinor, are they going to struggle? Mm. Well, uh, Yvonne Telford uh, from Westwood Energy says that's not necessarily going to be the case because you know, as you know, as I've already stated, Rosebank has has received that that approval. It's got that green light, um, so there is an element of certainty um, that's there with Rosebank that's maybe not there for potential investors in Cambo. Um, 
So there's, there's a lot of sort of there's a multitude of factors surrounding surrounding the deal. But um, Yvonne told us that Westwood, uh, their best estimate is as to why Equinor might have offloaded this state was essentially net ca- the net capital outlay for the Rosebank development, and in addition to net costs for the firm's other assets within the UK, is potentially exceeding its produced uh, UK revenue streams for 2025 and 2026. It is worth noting that Equinor could could stomach that, they could handle that, but it's still, you know, this is a way to maybe mitigate that risk and sort of reduce that, that burden. But a lot of interesting, uh, interesting sort of thoughts around it about, you know, this was a much anticipated development. We saw it as a big, big win, not just for Equinor at the time of the approval, but also for the industry. And maybe now they're looking to ramp down their involvement a little bit with their, you know, ramp down their ownership in it a little bit. But what's your guys' take? You know, what it makes me wonder, I mean, when you're talking about their costs versus the, the, the amount, you know, the revenues versus the costs. I mean, what happens if there's another kind of massive inflationary pressure on the industry or any kind of shock that we get, you know, how does that impact projects like this if uh, they can't find a buyer? But I mean, that's slightly speculative, but just an interesting question going forward. Um, interesting. Yeah, they can, so they can still stomach it. Um, I, I, I was just kind of, kind of rack my brain on who, who, who might come in. Um, you know, Ithaca had attempted to, uh, excuse me, Shell had tried to market their stake in Campbell, right? 30%. The fallback was, uh, if they couldn't get the right deal, it'd be Ithaca. We don't know how many people came into that process, if any. Um, but uh, ultimately, Ithaca were landed with it, and they have a, a hundred percent stake. So you've got, you know, Ithaca seeking to farm out Campbell. You've got Rosebank, uh, Equinor trying to farm out Rosebank. You know, two of the largest fields in the UK North Sea, two of the most controversial projects, perhaps in the world, as a consequence, um, and both pretty expensive. Um, we know these are complex. Um, expensive, you know, difficult projects in the harsh waters west of Shetland. So you do wonder who, who's who's got the right fit to come in. You know, you you might think a uh, you know a BP because they've got good west of Shetland um, portfolio, but I don't I don't necessarily get the sense from them that they're hungry for more there. I think they're quite happy with what they've got with Clare, which is a you know a huge untapped well not untapped now, but huge kind of hydrocarbon reserve. But Total are seeking to eggs. Uh, not exit, but trying to, they're, they're farming down part of the west of Shetland, Greater Lagan area stake, uh, it's been reported. Um, that kind of makes up your oil majors in the UK. Um, so you're looking at kind of the more mid-tier players. And I, I do wonder who who comes in there um, to potentially uh, pick it up. You would assume not Shell because they've just exited Cambo. I don't, don't know if that necessarily makes sense. But uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting to contemplate who could come in and how difficult or not would Equinor find uh, a sales process. I'd be really interested in finding out who uh, who ends up bidding. But so presumably it'd be more sort of like somebody, some sort of private equity group who might have uh, some cash and a sort of a, a sort of some sort of like a sort of a seven year time frame and uh, sort of throw a bit of money in. I, I, I mean, as you say, I find it hard to imagine uh, a kind of a major kind of coming in. So, I mean, I, I suppose just thinking about that sort of, you know, um, that 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 price tag you mentioned, Ryan, at the beginning, that sort of 1 billion plus, uh, do, do, do you think that's plausible? I mean, I think, you know, looking at sort of the other deals in the area, do you think that's... Uh, do you think that's a, like a like a valid sum? I mean, I think we've we've spoken about uh, spoken about this a 
couple of weeks ago, right? About you know the the just the scale of um of sort of stake available to, to take in various different sort of developments, both in West Shetland and across UK waters. And you know we have seen sort of firms struggling. So yeah, maybe as this develop as this process goes on and looking for a buyer, maybe that will get whittled down a little bit. You know, I think it's uh, that's you know the sort of reported um, reported value at the moment. But yeah, as as things drag on, if Equinor sees you know finds it as difficult to to find a buyer as Shell did, maybe maybe that uh, that will diminish in value somewhat. I'm just w- wondering about. I'm trying to recall when they said first oil would be. It was kind of 2026, 27, wasn't it? Um, am, I, am, I make, am I making that up? I, I believe it was sort of middle of the uh, middle of the decade. I yeah, think. Um, kind of 2026, I think. 2026, 27. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, I'm just trying to think about this. So they're trying to farm out. They're trying. You know, we've got a general election coming up with a bit of uncertainty there. Um, you know, there's still a few years yet, so they should should be able to achieve it. But you know, also the NSTA is kind of mandating that things be electrification ready as well, which I know Rosebank are planning on doing. But you know, there's there's a, there's a lot to be achieved here. A lot to be achieved before uh, before it happens. Um, you know. <laughs> They have just taken FID. Maybe that's a bit a bit harsh to be to be um, to be looking at that just yet. But yeah, I just wonder. You know, it'll, it'll be up to Equinor. We'll find out from them. You know, to what extent, uh, how important finding a buyer to come in will be in terms of the progress that's made and you know allocation of the costs. I think it is also worth mentioning. Yeah, uh, just just before we sort of wrap up here, that we did go to Equinor at the time of sort of reporting this to, to ask uh, about the situation, and they did say that you know it's market speculation, and they don't comment on that. But I mean, that's it, it does seem seem like it's uh, that is the case. They are trying to sort of offload that stake, right? Okay, well, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on that, uh, as we always do with Rosebank. But we'll park Equinor for there. Next up, it's over to Ed Reed for some crude thoughts. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. Okay, Ed, so low-carbon crude, um, is that a contradiction in terms or uh, where do we stand? Yeah, so this week, uh, NNPC and ITO uh, launched a new crude grade, uh, NEMBI, which was uh, which they were describing as low carbon. I think largely on the basis that uh, ITO has managed to uh, stop gas flaring on the uh, on the on the oil producing license that 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 crude comes from. So it felt like a like a like a like a like an interesting moment for uh, nigeria obviously nigeria's got a sort of a number of uh, sort of historic crudes uh, boni kwaiwe other others like that but i think uh, the launch of of, of nembi was interesting because 
it was very much the product of necessity rather than choice, it felt like. Um, so Nigeria obviously has, has, has sort of historic problems with, uh, with, with, with export and crude uh, in terms of uh, pipelines and, and, and sort of uh, bunkering of these pipelines where, the, where, where, where oil goes and there's these sort of historic pipeline losses, which are frankly astronomical in, in, in some cases, to the point that some of these producers have, have, have stopped um, exporting through, they, they prefer to shut down oil fields uh, rather than uh, export through these very leaky pipelines. One of the solutions to this is that um, they've bu- they're building new export infrastructure. So uh, ITO now has a new pipeline going to an, an FSO offshore, uh, and they can now export crude from that vessel. So it's obviously an important step for for, for ITO. They've they've they've, they've kind of tackled those kind of pipeline losses, um, and and they are now sort of producing again. And and as they say, you know, getting getting a, a sort of a premium to Brent. I think the challenge to that though is obviously about how they had to come to this uh, th- this point um, that um, they can no longer produce through the Nemby Creek trunk line and instead that they've got to uh, find this this new infrastructure. And it's got to be said that they're not alone in having to take this step. Others have, have, have sort of taken similar steps. Um, San Leon, which is which is London listed and is sort of about a, a hundred kilometers to the east, has also uh gone ahead with its own um, FSO. And so it feels like, um, obviously, it's a success for these companies. But for for, for Nigeria as a whole, it, it feels like a bit of an indictment. Um, obviously, NNPC, uh, the armed forces, the Navy, other, others have, have, have tried to take action on um, tackling the um, this sort of epidemic of, of, of theft, but clearly have, have failed to make the headway that they would have liked to. And so now uh, this feels like the, the inevitable outcome. Just in terms of, yeah, I guess the, I guess the, the oil traders side of it, if, if I could. Um, uh, and, and again, without, I keep saying without trying to sound flippant, and I think if you do that too many times, you do become flippant. <laughs> but just the low carbon element of it. Um, you know, I just want you know talk about premium to Brent and, and all the rest of it. I mean, what kind of what kind of impact will that have on the attractiveness of of this? And I guess you know, for traders of crude, maybe they're not as impacted about the carbon side. Otherwise, they perhaps just go to gas. I'm kind of showing perhaps a lack of knowledge on that particular aspect of this. But uh, yeah, maybe anything you can tell us about that side of things. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I mean the low carbon side is is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think um, I think I suppose particularly because we are seeing sort of developments in particularly in Europe around uh, potential ways in which they can. Control carbon, right? Obviously, that's kind of the, uh, the 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 name of the game, the 2030, 2050 goals, right? So one of the ways in which Europe is trying to do this is through uh, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, CBAM. And it essentially tries to penalise uh, sources of higher carbon over lower carbon, you know, manufacturing and energy. So I think... Um, Quite how that is going to work out is, is I think still going to be seen. I think I think we're you know it'd be quite interesting to see quite how that works out. But I think there is there is a growing awareness that some crudes have higher carbon emissions than others, um, 
And I think this is obviously a, a problem that Nigeria has struggled with historically. Um, the, the the country's got a lot of uh, a lot of flaring um, that that obviously kind of goes ups and up and down. And and there's there's a sort of a long running problem within Nigeria around around tackling that that flaring question. Um, the government has, has has repeatedly said it it, it wants to uh, stop flaring, um, but the it feels like the economics of that would actually may suggest that they would have to turn off more oil production. Mm. There's a lot of associated gas. Um, so instead of you know piping the gas somewhere and using it, they, they they burn it at the wellhead and export the oil. If you can't, if you can no longer burn that gas at the wellhead, maybe you have to do something else with that oil. Maybe you have to shut that 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 field in. So I think it's it's been a lot of a long running problem for, for for Nigeria, and I think it feels like um, it's becoming more of a problem the the more that people are talking about um, carbon emissions and um, the the kind of you know how much how much emissions from from a barrel of oil from from one barrel versus another. So obviously the the Norwegians, for instance. Uh, are making a lot of progress in terms of tackling those emissions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nigeria, you know, historically has has struggled. So, so it feels like you know, Nembi, um, it's it's it, it looks like quite an attractive crude, and, and and increasingly maybe that's a kind of a point of difference that they can point to. And I think I think one of the other problems around 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 ITO and 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 their uh, license is that they have had some fairly significant leaks um that uh, a couple of years ago they had a major kind of a blowout uh the santa barbara southfield i think um and so they were you know losing uh you know oil was going all over the place um and and they struggled for i'm trying to think it was it was maybe about a month before they were actually able to kind of come in and and kill that well so I think you know they clearly kind of made progress in terms of uh, in terms of flaring, but in terms of uh, other regards, it, it feels like there may still be room for improvement. And whether that is something that, uh, for instance, European buyers might want to take uh, into consideration, I think it it that doesn't feel like uh, like a like a like a technical step, like a regulated step at the moment. But obviously, it, it maybe should be uh, one of those things they bear in mind. I'm just, I suppose, yes, highlighting the problems that you've highlighted there. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious in the UK of the, the struggles around, you know, flaring and the, some of the solutions they're trying to come up with. As you say, the Norwegians have been uh, quite successful in that regard. You know, considering the challenges, I suppose, that Nigeria uh, and this company, ITO, ATO, ITO has, uh, has had in the past, the blowout you mentioned, I mean, the likelihood of this kind of low-carbon grading Picking up more widely, I mean, is that you know, or or efforts around this kind of thing, um, you know, if 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 one company can do it, can 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 other producers pick it up? I, is is kind of what I'm asking, but it sounds like there's perhaps quite a lot of barriers to that um, actually um, coming through. Yeah, I mean, I, I think look, I mean, I think it is as you know, it it is clearly something that they need to do, right? If if they want to sort of stay competitive into Europe, and I think that's kind of what that that sort of NEMBI kind of crude is kind of really pitching at. It's trying to say, look, we we have a part to play. I think you know, is this is this kind of replicable by other producers? There's going to be a challenge, right? I mean, I think you know, looking at the onshore, increasingly with the with the majors having you know exited or in the process of exiting, uh, the it's uh, the, the, there are more sort of indigenous companies, there are more uh, sort of Africa focused independents, say. So they have they have they have uh, not quite so much in the, in the way of those deep pockets that the majors did. So. 
It feels like, um, given that the, there's going to be more challenges in terms of financing, of course, and around capex, I wonder whether there is a risk that uh, you know the pro- progress we've seen from, from from companies like Shell in terms of tackling uh, flaring onshore in the Niger Delta. I'm, I'm, I wonder whether that can be repeated in quite the same way. I mean, I think you know there has to be like a kind of a clear set of, I suppose, of financial incentives uh, to to kind of make that work. There has to be financing available to uh, accomplish that sort of um, progress. And it, it feels like maybe at the moment uh, there isn't. I mean, I think you know there, there hasn't been that much uh, you know progress in terms of sort of you know new financing for oil and gas. I think I mean you know. Perhaps quite interestingly, this week we we saw um, sort of progress made in terms of the the launching of this uh, African Energy Bank, which is going to launch next year, sort of mid twenty twenty four, I think is the plan, and you know maybe that 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 might go into you know kind of tackling some of those problems. And it feels like this, this is the pro- sort of problem that is ripe for change, right? I think if we acknowledge that oil has to continue flowing. And that Nigeria has a gas flaring problem. These are the sorts of projects that would make a lot of sense to, to, to finance, right? They're, you know, they're relatively low cost. You could bring in, you know, there, there are various technologies in which you can, you know, kind of tackle uh, gas flaring, various uses for gas that you can, you know, use locally or at, or at the wellhead. And it feels like this would be like a, a real kind of scope for, you know, tackling this, this problem, which frankly, we've not seen enough progress in. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one, uh, Ed. But thanks very much for the lowdown on the low carbon. Um, that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to Ed and to Ryan for joining me. I've been Alison Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.